I thank God for our musicians and for all who have led us in worship today. We are in a sermon series called Questions Raised. I'm addressing a few of the questions that came up as our congregation has been reading through the New Testament over the past 12 months. And in one of our online Zoom meetings to talk about the New Testament, somebody asked about the reference to the Queen of the South in Matthew 12 and what was going on there. And I started looking at that passage and studying it. And so today I'm going to preach from Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42. I'll read from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is, A Sign from God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was for three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater and Solomon is here. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. When I was in 10th grade, I had a massive crush on a girl in my French class. One day during class, we were talking to each other, and she stepped on my toes with her cowboy boots. We kept talking and joking around, and she stepped on my toes again, even harder this time. I played it up like it hurt pretty bad, and honestly, it did hurt. We carried on. A minute or two later, she walked up to the front of the class to talk to the teacher about something. That's when I made a deal with God. I prayed that if she was the girl I was meant to be with, she would step on my toes before she returned to her seat. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, she turned around and walked back toward her seat. But before she sat down, she came over and stepped on my toes harder than ever. I thought to myself, it's a sign. It is a sign. But later... I started to wonder if the sign was legit. She had stepped on my toes multiple times before I said that prayer. 
So it wasn't unlikely that she would do it again, regardless of my bargain with God. I began to think this sign I had received was really a figment of my own creation. The result of me trying to spiritually manipulate a situation in order to broker my own desired outcome. Have you ever asked God for a sign? A sign that God is real? Or a sign that God is with you? I'll tell you what I've wondered on many occasions, especially when I was younger. Why doesn't God just write a message in the sky for everybody? If God put the sign up high enough among the stars, right beside the Milky Way, then all peoples could see it the world over. Or instead of writing something, maybe God could do something so blatantly and irrefutably miraculous that no reasonable person could possibly doubt that God is real. Maybe God could reach down from heaven with a gigantic hand and toss Mount Fuji into the ocean or make the Eiffel Tower do a somersault or even clear the traffic on I-95 one Friday afternoon. It appears that this kind of thinking has been around for centuries because some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. These smarty-pants religionists were unpersuaded that Jesus was the Messiah, so they demanded a sign from him to prove it. It was a bit pretentious on their part, but there was scriptural precedent for God's chosen leaders being authenticated by miraculous signs. In the book of Exodus, God sent Moses to liberate the Israelites from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Moses said, but what if they don't believe me or listen to me? So God gave Moses the power to turn his staff into a snake and to turn the water of the Nile into blood. Moses was given remarkable signs to perform in order to substantiate his God-given authority. In the book of Judges, God called Gideon to lead Israel in overcoming the Midianites. Gideon said, look God, if you're really with me to defeat the Midianites, as you have said let this fleece I'm putting on the ground have dew on it in the morning and let all the ground around it be dry. The next morning, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Gideon said, um, okay, God, don't get upset, but just to be doubly sure that it's a real sign from you, this time let the fleece be dry and all the ground around it be wet. The next morning, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Gideon was given clear confirmation of his calling. Since God had formerly used astounding signs to prove the divine authorization of certain individuals, 
Were the scribes and Pharisees so far off base to request a sign from Jesus? Apparently so, since Jesus calls them an evil and unfaithful generation. Perhaps there's an important distinction between a servant of God asking for a sign while doing God's will and a group of cynics demanding a sign to satisfy their own standards for divine activity. Moses and Gideon were doing God's will while these scribes and Pharisees wanted God to do their will. They were trying to manipulate the situation in order to broker their own desired outcome. They wanted Jesus to conform to their preconceived notions of the Messiah. They wanted Jesus to walk the path they had carved for him. They wanted Jesus to fit the messianic mold that they had fashioned in the shape of their own expectations. So they demanded that Jesus do something fancy to certify his messiahship. They summoned him to demonstrate supernatural skills that would distinguish him from the other healers, exorcists, and magicians of the day. They wanted Jesus to flaunt his divine power in a flashy manner. The devil, of course, had already tried this temptation. In Matthew 4, the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, jump off the top of the temple so angels can catch you on their wings. Such a flamboyant exhibition would have made for a scintillating publicity stunt. Can you imagine the hustle and bustle of the temple precincts coming to a sudden halt as everybody watches Jesus leap off the very top of the temple, falling fast towards certain death, only to be caught by angels, cradled on their wings, and then gently set upon the ground? Eat your heart out, Houdini. But Jesus rejected the devil's proposition just as he refused to do a superhuman trick for these scribes and Pharisees. The reason was that Jesus did not come to astonish, but to serve. He did not come to dazzle, but to bless. He did not come to amaze, but to help. He did not come to entertain, but to save. He did not come to curate a celebrity image, but to meet people's needs. He did not come to build a power brand, but to relieve human suffering. He did not come to show off, but to show love. His miracles were not available on demand. He would not be reduced to God's dog and pony show. He did not come to impress the viewership, but to express God's compassion. He did not come to electrify an audience, but to empower the marginalized. He did not come to bring us divine grandstanding, but to bring us divine grace. Indeed, Jesus had already offered ample evidence of who he was, how he would employ his divine powers. 
He had preached about the kingdom of heaven till his throat was sore. He had healed people of pains, diseases, fevers, paralysis, and more. He had exercised demons. He had cleansed leprosy. He had forgiven sins. He had revived a young girl after she flatlined. He had made the blind to see and the mute to speak. He had extended mercy to sinners and tax collectors. And still there was an outcry for miraculous marvels, not tender mercy, for spectacular signs, not compassionate outreach, for spiritual showbiz, not the love of God. You will get no sign, Jesus says, except one. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was an Old Testament character whom God sent to preach repentance to the Ninevites. But since Jonah despised Nineveh, he made his way toward Tarshish instead. He knew God would be merciful to the Ninevites if he went to them, and he did not want those atrocious pagan sinners to receive even a modicum of God's mercy. Eventually, however, Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites, and they repented against all odds and were saved from destruction. Similarly, Jesus himself preached repentance to sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. And they responded to his message much more readily than the religious leaders did. In Jesus' ministry, as in Jonah's, it was abject sinners who benefited from God's grace rather than self-righteous believers. This is why Jesus says the people of Nineveh will rise up at the final judgment to condemn the generation at hand. The Ninevites repented when God's messenger preached to them, but the generation Jesus addressed obstinately refused to repent and intransigently rejected his message. Jesus adds that the Queen of the South, also known as the Queen of Sheba, will likewise rise up at the final judgment. According to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, the queen of the south heard from afar about Solomon's magnificent wisdom. She doubted the reports, however, so she traveled a great distance to examine King Solomon for herself. She asked him every hard question she could possibly think of, and he answered every one with unparalleled understanding. In the end, the queen admitted that Solomon's wisdom was indeed tremendous. And though she had come from a pagan land, she declared, Blessed be the Lord your God. The queen of the south, therefore, was a role model for the generation Jesus was addressing. Although initially skeptical, when she encountered Solomon, she repented and believed in his wisdom. 
Likewise, the generation of the scribes and Pharisees needed to shift from skepticism to worship, from doubtfulness to doxology, from cynicism to faith. If Nineveh repented upon hearing Jonah's preaching and the queen repented upon hearing Solomon's wisdom, then Jesus' contemporaries had no excuse for their unbelief because he was greater than Jonah and Solomon put together. He far surpassed Jonah in prophetic inspiration and far exceeded Solomon in divine wisdom. Jesus was God's definitive messenger, God's only begotten Son, the Word of God made flesh, the Messiah, the Savior. If sinners and skeptics repented in former days, how much more should they be repenting in the presence of Christ? Yet only a sign, it seems, would allay their dubious posture toward Jesus. Which brings us around to why Jesus said they would be given the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was for three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, Jesus says, so for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. He's referencing the period before Jonah preached to the Ninevites when he was swallowed by a whale at sea. The story says three days later, the whale spit Jonah out onto the shore. Similarly, Jesus himself would die on a cross and be buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he would arise from the grave. This is the sign that Jesus is God's Messiah. This is the sign that Jesus is the Savior. This is the sign that Jesus is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He will die on the cross and arise from the grave. For any who want a sign from God, for any who want clear evidence that God is real, for any who want some indication of divine guidance, in their life, look no further than the sign of Jonah, the death and resurrection of Christ. This sign shows that God is with us in suffering and death. It also shows that God overpowers the grave to give us life on the other side. The sign of Jonah is not flashy because the death of Christ was a public shame and his resurrection unfolded inside a tomb beneath the early morning darkness one Sunday when nobody was around to see it. But it's a marvelous sign nonetheless because of what it conveys. This sign conveys that God loves us so very much that Christ died for our sins and arose again to give us eternal life. This sign conveys that God uses power not to impress onlookers, but to grant abundant life. This sign conveys that God is fully revealed in the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus. For the resurrection is God's emphatic stamp of vindication on everything Jesus said and 
did. Of course, it's one thing to be given a sign. And it's another thing to truly understand what it indicates. When I was 13, I showed up late one night to my county league baseball game. The first inning was underway, and I got inserted into the lineup, and somewhere around the third or the fourth inning, I reached first base. I looked across the way to the third base coach. You know, he was giving the signs, this kind of thing, you know. And he gave me the sign to steal. I was shocked because I was one of the slowest runners on the whole team. But I was not going to miss this chance. The next pitch, I took off towards second, and I made it. Well, I brushed myself off, you know, feeling good on second base. Looked over at my third base coach again. He's going through all the rigmarole, you know, this kind of deal. And he gave me the sign to steal again. Now, I'm telling you, I, I could hardly believe it, but I was so pumped. The next pitch, I took off toward third. Now, I would have been out by a mile except the catcher made a bad throw. Third baseman couldn't handle it. So there I stood safely on third base, brushing myself off, feeling pretty good, smiling at the third base coach who leaned in and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm stealing bases, coach. You know, you gave me the steal sign over on first, gave me the steal sign over on second. He said, I most certainly did not. You think I would give you the steal sign? I said, you gave me the sign. He said, we changed the signs before the game. I had misread the signs that were given to me because I had been looking for the wrong indicators. I'm afraid that's what happened to this group of scribes and Pharisees, and I don't want it to happen to anybody else. Amid all the signs from God we might prayerfully request, amid all the signs from God we might think we detect in our lives, there is one sign that's always accurate. There is one sign that never changes. There is one sign that's always true. There is one sign that's always reliable. There is one sign that's always worth heeding. This one sign shows that life is stronger than death. This one sign shows that love is greater than hate. This one sign shows that God is with us in our trials and in our triumphs. This one sign shows that God is more interested in ministering compassion than mesmerizing crowds. This one sign shows that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This one sign shows that God forgives our sins, heals our hurts, empowers the downtrodden, strengthens the weak, champions the marginalized, loves us sacrificially, and brings us eternal life. This one sign shows that God's will for our lives is to treat others as we wish to be treated and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. This one sign is not written high in the stars like the Milky Way. It is rather written on a cross set high upon a hill 
and on the empty tomb that followed the next Sunday. This one sign confirms that God is real. This one sign reveals God's power. This one sign discloses God's character. This one sign demonstrates God's nearness to us. This one sign indicates that God really does save us from sin and from death. This one sign is Jesus Christ, Christ crucified and Christ risen. Jesus is the sign of Jonah. Jesus is our sign from God. And he's the only sign we'll ever really need. Amen.